Well, why don't we stand one more time, because I know we've been standing and sitting a lot, but uh, no, I'll read us our passage today. 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to me, the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him the way while he was going up, while he was going up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Canaanites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites. In fear I destroy you with them, for show kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings and the lambs, and all that was good. And there was no, and they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made, made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early the next morning to meet Saul, and was told, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul has come to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself then, to turn and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though, that you were little in your own eyes, and you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, the fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission in which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil sheep, auction choices of the thing devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this uh, time in history that you've recorded for us to to see your heart and see how you um, just perceived what happened here. And I just pray that um, your spirit can soften us and prepare us for your truth as it gets laid before us today, and that we can walk in a way that is uh, deeper and more intimate with you. In Jesus' name.
So before we dive into the the first Samuel chapter 15 passage, I want to just kind of touch up and refresh our memory on who some of the characters are, like Saul and and Samuel. Starting with Samuel, we actually see um, his history starting in the beginning of this book. And uh, his mother is a woman named Hannah. Hannah then comes to God in prayer because she is barren and she really wants a son. And she's heartbroken that she cannot have a child. So she prays to God and asks God that if he was to give her a child, that um, she would dedicate this, this child to the Lord. And sure enough, God answers her prayers and um, she has a boy. And when the boy was old enough, she came back um, and dedicated this boy to the Lord to serve God for his whole life. So this is Samuel. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel there is actually confirmed a prophet of God. And then later on in verse uh, chapter 17, or 7, sorry, it says that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So Samuel, we see here, is a prophet of God, someone dedicated to God and speaks on behalf of him. And also judges Israel all the days of his life, meaning he would be the one that people would come to for uh, for him to solve their their issues and use God's words uh, as a way to do that. Saul, now, we see um, his story sort of begins in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 there, Israel actually approaches Samuel, and and they demand a king. They want to be like the nations around them. And up to this point, God has actually been their king, and they've never had a physical king. So God warns them of the cost of what it might look like to have a king in chapter 8. But despite all these warnings, God says to Samuel, give Israel what they want, and we'll give them a physical king. God then shows Samuel, Saul, And Saul then is anointed by God, uh, king, the first king of Israel. And we see in chapter 10, he's publicly chosen as the king in Israel. And chapter 13 says that Saul reigned 32 years. And one chapter before 15, we see in 14, he tells us there that Saul fought against all Israel's enemies. And wherever he turned, he was inflicting punishment. So Saul was a, um, he fought many wars, many victories, and uh, he, he had, had a lot of violence and fighting as the king of Israel. There was not much peace there. So we have Samuel the prophet and judge, and Saul the first king of Israel. So our passage is quite big, as you could tell, for the lengthy read that I did. So I have tried to. Um, help progress through this a little quicker by breaking it into five sections. The first section is God's commission to Saul. And we pick this up in verses 1 to 3. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his, his people, over Israel. Therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against them on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. 
put, but put to death both man, women, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. <clears throat> so three things I want to point out here. First, you can see here that God is very clear on his instructions to Saul. There's really no, God doesn't leave any chance to interpret things different. What he says is very clear and, and, uh, and uh, no reason for Saul to, to misunderstand what God has for him here. Second, we see that God actually is demanding the extinction of the Amalekite people. He says, literally, do not spare anybody. Put death to both man, woman, child, every animal, and literally everything. Wipe them off the face of the planet. And the third thing I don't want you to miss is God is basing this attack on history. History between the Amalekites and Israel. And I'll give you these verses, and you can read them later if you'd like. But we actually see what happened to Israel from the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. And there is where, as Moses was taking Israel through the desert, the Amalekites were coming and they were uh, actually attacking them from behind as they were moving. And God told Moses to go up onto the mountain, and as he picked his hands up, God was going to have victory in the, in the war. And so Moses had to stand with his arms up as they fought, and they gained victory over them that day. Another um, great detail is actually written also in Deuteronomy 25, and I'll read that for you. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. So this is God speaking. He says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came from Egypt. That, that place, uh, that time I was telling you about. He says, How he met you along the way, attacked you among all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and you were weary. He did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. <clears throat> so God actually, interesting enough, was fulfilling this promise that he made to them way back in the desert. He's fulfilling it right now with King Saul. We can also see a few little descriptions of the Amalekite people in, in uh, 1 Samuel 15. We see one in verse uh, 18. Saul actually says, go and utterly destroy the sinners. And we also pick one up later on in verse 33. Samuel is actually executing King Agag, and he says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. In other words, King Agag was a child killer. So all this being said is to, to show that God was not randomly choosing this random people group that was just happened to be in his way to just wipe them off the planet. These people had a history of being wicked, and he had to fulfill a promise he also made to Moses in the desert. 
So with the commission now given to Saul, how did he respond to God's commission? And we pick this up in verses 4 to 9. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he set an ambush. Going forward to verse 7, he says, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah and, and go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, oxen, fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised, worthless, they utterly destroyed. So Saul's initial immediate response is one that you would hope and expect from a king that's been anointed by God. He gathered his army and set up an, an ambush to, Am, Am, to Amalek. So Saul goes to war and has victory. But his victory is actually on his terms, not on God's terms. So we see that he defeated them, but he decided to spare King Agag, and take sheep and oxen and the animals. So Saul failed in his mission to fully exterminate the Amalekites, along with the animals and that belonged to them, and all the spoil. So God has something to say about that, and we pick that now up in verse 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments and <clears throat> my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So we see here that God actually feels regret. He feels regret for making Saul king. And God actually sees what Saul did as turning his back on him. So, so through Samuel's distress all night, wakes up the next morning, and he has to go confront Saul. And we pick this up between verses 12 and 21. Samuel rose early in the morning, came to Saul, saying, <clears throat> he came to Saul, and we go to verse 13, and Saul says, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep of the ears, the lowing of the ox which I hear? 15, Saul said, I... I, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord has told me last night. Samuel said, It is not true, though, that you, was it not true that you were little in your own eyes when you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? A few things I want to point out here. First, we see here that Samuel uses the external evidence of Saul's disobedience to actually call him out. Right? In verse 14, he says, What then is the bleeding of the sheep I hear and the lowing of the oxen? Because Samuel knows that you were not supposed to take anything. There's external evidence of Saul's disobedience. Next, 
Samuel actually reminds Saul where he came from and how he actually reached this position of power. In verse 17, Is it not true that you were little in your own eyes? You were made head of the tribe of Israel. What's interesting enough, you can read this if you'd like, in, um, I believe it's 1 Samuel... First Samuel 10, yes, First Samuel 10, verses 20 and 23, when Saul was publicly made king, it actually said that he was hiding. So he, he, he had no confidence in himself. He actually was hiding. They had to go find him and then grab him and be like, this is our king. And then everyone cheered. And, and so he's reminding him, remember this, what you thought about yourself, but God still made you the king of Israel. And the last thing is, not doing what God commanded, the way he commanded, it was actually considered evil in the sight of the Lord. And we pick that up in verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed in upon the spoil, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So, Samuel's rebuke reveals that Saul has done evil in the sight of God by not obeying the voice and his attack of the Amalekites. So, after Samuel's rebuke of Saul, what does Saul have to say about all this now? We see his response here. I'll read them out for you, starting in verse 13. So when Samuel comes to Saul, he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. 15, he says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, from the people, when they, and, and the people spared the animals to sacrifice to you, God. And in 2021, Saul said, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on a mission on which God sent me. And I have brought back King Agag, but I utterly destroyed the Malachites. And the, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. So things I don't want you to miss from that, we see in verses 13 and 20, Saul actually believes, and it seems very genuine, he actually believes he carried out the command of the Lord. And interesting enough, I find in verse 13 when he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord, he uses it in a singular way, as if there was just one single command and he accomplished this. But really, God had multiple facets to his command, almost making it more plural, like commands, of extinguishing them and not sparing anybody and don't take any animals and thus forth. The second thing about Saul's response, <clears throat> when he was confronted about the animals, he did two things. First thing, he didn't take responsibility, and he actually blamed the people for taking it. We see that in verses 15 and 21. And he says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best. In 21 he says, but the people took some of the spoil. 
at the end of, so in 2021, Saul even says, he says, I obeyed the voice in the beginning of 20. And then 21, he says, but the people took some. So even to Saul's perspective, he says, I'm good. I did nothing wrong. It was actually the people that did it. I obeyed everything. The second thing he did when he was confronted about the animals was that he masked his disobedience by giving it a godly purpose. And we see that when in verses uh, 15, he says, From the people spared the best of the sheep auction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. In 21, the people took some of the spoil and sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, just to give some more insight into Saul and his character, before we move on to the what I believe is the crux of what I want us to remember today, if you look in 1 Samuel 15, 24, we get some really strong insight into what led Saul to disobey. He says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed this command, the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. So Saul spent this entire time in his response to Samuel justifying, blame-shifting, not taking responsibility for the people that he was in power for because he feared them more than he feared God. So moving forward, Samuel now has a response back to this justification and blame shifting, which I believe speaks tremendously of God's heart. And we pick this up in verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel is speaking the heart of God in this matter. To obey is better than sacrifice. The interesting thing, when I first came across this phrase in this passage, obeying is better than sacrifice, to me it actually kind of seemed a little bit contradictory. Because in some ways, doesn't God actually ask them to do sacrifices? So you could almost say that to obey would be to participate in the sacrifices. So if that's true and God does ask them to do that, and part of that would be obeying, then what's the difference in this part here? How do we wrestle through this idea of obedience is better than sacrifice? I think it will help if we define what these terms are. 
So let's start with sacrifice. So when I use when I speak into sacrifice, I also am going to group together things like ceremonies and rituals. They're also very similar to sacrifices. And so how I would define the sacrifice here, we would say ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices, they were never meant to earn any rights with God or change your standing position with God. I'll say that again. Ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices were never meant to earn any rights with God or change your position with Him regarding sin and being right. Interesting enough, God actually takes no pleasure in any of those things. We see this in Psalm 51, 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. So the next question is, if he takes no pleasure in them, and they're not there to make us right, then what are they there for? Why does God even ask us to even do them then? I think the word speaks to ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices are to be reminders and symbols of what God has done, and they were to reveal aspects of his heart to us. We can see this in Hebrews chapter 10. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were meant to be reminders. So um, uh, a great way to look at it, it, it would be like as the priest is cutting and, and killing the goat, there would be this slaughter, this blood, this everything's pooling out, the death of this animal. And the physical act of doing that is to represent the cost of sin. So as a person is, was doing something like that, they would say, my sin costs something. It doesn't, it's not just nothing, it costs something. And so it was to visually represent that. And then what that does is it creates an inward change as you are doing that. And you are seeing that your sin costs that. It wasn't that there was any power within the sacrifice itself and the, and the actual ritual or, or ceremony of it. It was the heart change that was supposed to come from witnessing those things. We can modernize this with communion. Communion, there is no power within taking the cup and eating the bread. But what does God ask us to do in 1 Corinthians? He asks us to remember. Remember what Christ did on the cross. Remember what we did to put him there. And through the act and ceremony and, and ritual of doing communion together, it inwardly shapes our hearts to God's character so that we can reflect that outwards. So things like these 
sacrifices, rituals, and ceremonies. They're two external things that we do that reveals God to us, shows his heart, and shows us how he wants to shape us through doing them. But ultimately, it's inward change. It's not a way to make things right, like checking off a box and making it right with him, but to change you inwardly. So how do we describe obedience? The act of obedience has more meaning than just listening and completing a task or just checking off a box on this big do's and don'ts list. John 14, 15, Jesus actually speaks to the power of obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Seems quite simple. But what's great is obedience is our expression of love to God. It's how he knows that we love him. See, it's it's not like our culture. It's not how we feel. God doesn't look at our hearts and say, oh, his heart really loves me, and he feels it. It's not this intellectual belief system in your mind of just in your mind thinking about God. But it's actually walking it and doing what God commands is what actually physically shows him that you love him. And he knows now that you love him because of what you've done and walked. So sacrifices are symbols and remembrance, and obedience is love and relational. To obey is better than sacrifice because obedience is love. It's an expression that we have for God. And Saul's pursuit of sacrifice, of trying to just make himself right by God, by just checking off a box, it actually led him away from obedience. It led him away from being able to love God. I think Psalm 51 really sums up everything that we've looked at today. There it is. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. Sorry, you have to look at verse 17. I'll read it for you. I think I forgot to put that in there. Verse 17 is key. If you want to turn there, actually, that would be awesome. 51, Psalm 51. I'll read it to you, though. But if you turn there, it's great as well. 51.16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Though you are not pleased with burnt offerings, here's the key. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God, O God, you will not despise. 
our number one sacrifice to God has to be our heart. Anything shy of that essentially is meaningless to him in comparison to how much he wants your heart. It's about priorities. Seeking his heart with your heart and then using the things like sacrifice to, to help grow us inwardly so we can gain closer relationship with the Lord. So I have a few lessons that we can take away from this. Obedience to God's commands is how we show love to him. So remember, it's one of the biggest victories I had in my life was uh, I had this uh, this area of sin I just I was just struggling with all the time, and anytime I thought I had good victory, I ended up not. What really changed for me was every time I came tempted of that, I'd ask myself one question: I'd ask myself, "Do I love God?" Naturally, any one of us would say, yes, I do. And so then then I would say to myself, well, then I have to walk that. That means if I love him, and I do, and I intellectually believe I do, now it's time for me to show him. So then, now you have a choice. Either walk in the sin that you're tempted in, or walk in the way that he's laid before you. And so I know that if I love him, then it's going to look like this. The second lesson is a little longer. Whoops. So God takes no pleasure in the ceremonies, rituals, sacrifices, or anything we do to try and gain favor with him. But instead, he wants us to sacrifice our hearts, revealing his character through us. So we can approach things like communion and church and all these other ways in which we might um, we might think are these things that God just loves that we do and he's just looking at us smiling and although he might be but we can look at it and ask ourselves what is God trying to do with our hearts while we do these things what is he asking us to be like what is he asking us to shed so that we can reveal his character to other people and we can show him that we love him I'm going to leave you with one question that we can ask ourselves today as a way to apply what we've learned. How many of us today, or in the past, have made more effort to make it to church on Sunday than to deal with the sin in our lives? This is a pretty applicable one. A lot of us think we've checked a huge box by coming to church today, which is great, and we're so happy that you could come and be here with us. But what God is saying in priority, he's saying, I want your heart first before you do things like coming to church and checking a box off. So if you're going to come and have relationships 
that need to be addressed and things like that, and you're walking away from those things because you think you're doing something good by just coming, then you're not thinking of how God wants you to think about those things. And I'll share an example of how God has worked through Laura and I. This is a long time ago, back when we used to attend Pine Ridge. <clears throat> and her and I, I don't remember the fight, but we were fighting. We were driving up there. And what was interesting, we drove all the way to Pine Ridge, which at the time they didn't have a ring road, so it was 40 minutes. And we get and we stopped a block before the building. And we actually fought the entire time, and we didn't even actually make it to church because we fought right there on the street, and we dealt with it. And then we went afterwards, and it was great. But I look back now, and I think, man, that was just God speaking to us to deal with what was in front of us instead of being coming to church and pretending like everything's okay when it really wasn't. And we would come in there and people would say, how's your day? How are you doing? Oh, it's great, it's great. But really, we were like grabbing each other's necks on the way up, right? And I say all this to say it's just, it's, it's about priority. Not, there's, I don't want you to leave today thinking there's anything bad about coming to church, praying, taking communion, any of those things. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what that Bible is saying. I think what this saying is the priority of it. Get your heart right with God and understand that when we do things like ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices to him, that he, you, he's looking for an inward change from us. Okay? And not that there's any, there's no power within the act, but an inward change. Uh, Lord, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Um, I just pray um, deeply that as we come together and uh, we lift our arms up to you that in our prayers that um, your spirit will work profoundly in each one of us and, and just show us deeply all the ways in which we can put aside the things that we think make us right with you and know that it's Jesus alone, his blood alone, and that all you ask of us is our hearts. So I just pray and lift this up in your name. Amen.